Now I get to introduce our guest speaker. And I'm very excited about doing this because we have a phenomenal 20s group here. I mean, just the, we have just some phenomenal people. But, uh, and not but, but and, uh, one of, we've heard from many of them. And one of the ones that has just always impressed me very deeply is Vignesh. And he is smart, but um, what I love about him is the, the depth to which he just absolutely has this spot-on relationship with God. How did he get that? And today you're going to hear his history and see that that's not just an obvious thing to have happen. I'm getting quite a reflection. Is there a way to beat that somehow? Okay. All right. So anyway, the bottom line, they're not yet, not, not just yet. I just want to say, in the way of saying how God works here, which is extraordinary, you have to know that how long ago did I ask you to preach? Was it two, three months ago? Two, three months ago. And he had a sermon in mind, which I didn't know. You know, he just said a couple things, but what do I know? And then last week, I preached a sermon which was about, primarily, it was about that there are secular things, worldly things, and there are spiritual things. And how do we meld the two? How do we find the harmony between them? How do you be in the world when you're of the kingdom of God? Now, that's what I preached about last week. Now, what he's going to preach about this week, not to give too much away, but he's going to preach about even if you're of the kingdom of God, you're going to find that there is a way of being in the kingdom of God in a way that is a division between being kind of worldly and actually being sold out to the Lord. How do we get from one to the other? So once again, I just want to say, this is like, I, I heard your preach call, and it didn't even occur to me. And then all of a sudden I went, oh my gosh, that's like the most perfect follow-up to what I did last week. But I, want, I say that to say this. I want you to see what the Lord's doing, but I want us to see what the Lord's doing because he's trying to do something. So when the Lord starts putting things together this tight, I want to say, listen, pay attention. There's a moment that's happening. God is trying to do something, and he's going to bring it through one of our excellent younger people, a great man of God. Welcome, Vignesh, with, with me. Thank you. Uh, appreciate it. I'm shivering. <laughs> Martin, uh, thank you so much. I have to admit, it's kind of weird standing in front of you this morning to share. And also, it's an incredibly humbling opportunity to share the word of God with you this morning. Um, I feel like a sense of love, excitement, nervousness, and all of them put together in a blender and rested in my stomach. <laughs> Um, but out of all of those feelings, two of them seem to primarily stand up. One, the truth of God to be preached for its face value, and two, to be shared it with love. Uh, I'm incredibly humbled to stand in front of you, because every Sunday as I walk into church and I have a conversation with people, uh, I'm like, wow, that faith is just astounding. How do you do that? And I'm just incredibly blessed to be as a part of Lake Sam and a family that God has brought up over the period of time. And <clears throat> I cannot help but uh, think of Kurt and Julie for all the sacrifices they have did over the period of time. Would you mind giving a round of applause for Kurt and Julie this morning? You know, 
Julie makes sure the service runs seamless every Sunday. You're sitting here comfortably because she's always running in the background. And Kurt, you know, he's just perfect. He's just amazing. <laughs> but also, yep. Uh, also, I, I respect that man of God for the love that he has for this church. Did you actually know last week uh, when he was preaching from here, a couple of days before that, he actually went through a surgery, but I don't know how he managed to hold that pain inside and still stand here and preach with the love and compassion that he has for this body of Christ. It just amazes me. <clears throat> a little bit about myself. If you don't know me, my name is Vignesh. Um, I moved to the U.S. from uh, India, as you guessed probably, like a year and a half ago for work. Um, and if you know the aesthetics of Indian culture, you would immediately recognize that uh, Vignesh is not a, uh, an ideal Christian name in India. And yes, I was born and raised a Hindu. And after I graduated high school and as I moved to college, uh, God, in one of his unique ways of uh, working and meeting people, reached to me through one of the professors who was working in my college. And uh, I was also dealing with this huge hole in my heart where there is nothing but vacuum. And I was trying to find the meaning of life and what am I even, why am I even here for and what am I doing with my life. And she just gave me the perfect gift, the Bible, and which had answer for all the questions that I had. And the journey has been great so far. Uh, <clears throat> today, we are going to uh, do something different. We are not going to uh, continue with the Empower series. We are going to go back to the Old Testament to look at the book of 2 Kings and chapter 5. And uh, I'm excited to see what God is going to teach us this morning. Uh, Kevin, would you please lift us in prayer this morning? I got to say this, you're just perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Your Kurt impression is spot on. <laughs> well, Lord, thank you for Vignesh. Thank you for speaking to him and through him. I pray that you would uh, just be in every word he says. Open our hearts to hear what he has to say, to hear what you have to say. And uh, Lord, so we lift up Lake Sam to you and, and ask that you would do something beautiful this morning with us. Um, we also lift up City Church uh, down the road and ask that you would be with them and, and Holy Spirit just fill them. And we love you, and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 <clears throat> All right. A story is told of a five-year-old who is in need of a bicycle. And he's also been taught by his parents that God answers prayers, so, but he also didn't know how to pray. So he switches on the television to understand how to pray, he watches the TV preacher preach, and he runs to his room, gets down on his knees, and he begins his prayer by saying, Heavenly Father, hallowed be thy name. I am in need of a bicycle. If this be in your everlasting will, please give me a bicycle. In Jesus' name, amen. So the next day he wakes up, he runs to the garage to find out there's no bicycle. <clears throat> the next day, he goes to his room again, gets on his knees, and he says, Father, I declare my need for a bicycle. I think I forgot to mention this yesterday, but today I say that I need it by tomorrow. <laughs> and 
<clears throat> I pray that it be in, garage, in, in my garage tomorrow morning. He goes to sleep, thinking that there'll be a bicycle tomorrow. Um, and next morning, he wakes up to find out that there is still no bicycle. He is kind of mad right now. He, he goes to the living room, picks up a statue of Mary that is lying around in the living room, and he runs to the woods, hides them under the bushes, and he gets back to his room again, gets on his knee again, and he starts by pr his prayer by saying, Jesus, if you want to see your mother again, You know, this is one of those classic stories that always makes me chuckle. But sometimes when I think about this story, I find this very intriguing. I wonder if we, as Christians, react like the kid did with God. Do we actually try to trade things and try to do things in our own power and still justify it in the name of God? In 2 Kings 5, uh, okay, there we go. I'm going to talk about the priorities and the desires of human heart today. And we are going, as I said earlier, we are going to look at 2 Kings 5. Uh, I'm sorry, we're going to do a lot of scripts. I'm going to read the entire chapter. I'll make sure it's, it's up on the screen, so just keep up with me. The king of Aram had a great admiration for Naaman, the commander of his army, because through him the Lord had given Aram great victories. But though Naaman was a mighty warrior, he suffered from leprosy. Now I want you to note, Naaman is a guy who has incredible credentials in the society that he was living in. But he was also a leper. At this time, the Aramean raiders have invaded the land of Israel. Among the other captives was a young girl who had, given, uh, Naaman's, who was given, who had been given to Naaman's wife as a maid. One day, the girl said to her mistress, I wish my master would go to, prophet, to see the prophet in Samaria. He would see, heal him of leprosy. What is happening here is, this guy is in tremendous pain, and I want you to think about leprosy in its entirety. It's not an internal disease where people are not going to notice what you're going through. It's an external disease. You're, you're physically going to change over a period of time once you're diagnosed with leprosy. And though this guy is a, is a mighty one, he has incredible credentials, he has a successful career, he has a, a, a wife that loves him, he is dealing with this pain every day in his life, all right? And the scripture goes on to say, when the king of, uh, when the king of, did I go too far? Okay, sorry about that. So Naaman told the king what the young girl had said from Israel, go and visit the prophet. The king of Aram told him, I will send a letter of introduction for you to take to the king of Israel. So Naaman started out carrying us, Give 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, 10 sets of clothing. The letter to the king of Israel said, With this letter I present my, ser my servant Naaman. I want you to heal him of leprosy. <clears throat> this is an interesting scenario. Now imagine what Jehoram, who was the king of uh, Israel during that time, imagine how he would react. And he exactly reacted the way we actually thought. Uh, 
When the king of Israel had read the letter, he tore his clothes. He got really mad. He had, this is something that he does not have control over, and he had to deal with it. <clears throat> Am I the God that can give life and take it away? Why is this man asking me to heal someone with leprosy? I can see that he's just trying to pick a fight with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard what the king of Israel had torn in clothes in his dismay, he sent his message to him, why are you so upset? Uh, send Naaman to me and he will learn that he's a true prophet here. There is a true prophet here in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and waited at the door of Elisha. Uh, but Elisha sent a messenger out to him saying, go and wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River, then your skin will be resorted and you will be healed of your leprosy. Just a quick, I know it's a lot of scriptures, a quick rundown of what's happening. So Naaman has leprosy, he decides to heal himself by uh, taking the recommendation from the, uh, his wife's maid who told, if he goes to Israel and visit this prophet, he will be healed. But so he takes a step forward, goes to the king, and he says, uh, this is what the, the maid has said. I think I have to go to Israel now, and I just need your support to go and get myself healed. The king says, go ahead. And what is happening is, the moment the king of Israel reads the letter, he gets mad. He doesn't know what to do, because that is something that, he's not, that is not in his control. But Elisha, the man who knows God, he sends a messenger out to the king saying, why are you so upset? I know what God is capable of doing. Why don't you just send him over to me and I'll heal him? And what's interesting here and what's happening in the next thing is, Elisha is sending out uh, his servant to say him that, go and wash yourself in the river of Jordan seven times and you'll be healed. I can totally see myself in Naaman's shoes. You make an effort, first of all. You, you go and show up. And what you're expecting is not there. And this guy has been instructed to go and wash himself in a river, which is in Israel again, and to be healed. What would you expect? You'd be mad. And that is exactly what happened with Naaman. But Naaman became angry and he stalked away. I thought he would certainly come out and meet me, he said. I expected him to wave his hand over him and uh, call on the name of the Lord and heal me. Aren't there rivers in Damascus, Abana, and Parfar? Better than any of the rivers in Israel? Why shouldn't I wash in them and be healed? So Naaman turned and went away in rage. But his officers tried to reason with him. Sir, if the prophet had told you to do something very difficult, wouldn't you have done it? So you should certainly obey what he says and go wash and be cured. Naaman went down to the river of Jordan and dipped himself seven times as the man of God has instructed and his skin was, became healthy as the skin of a young child, and he was healed. Now, I want you to notice how he initially reacts. First off, he's mad, because the prophet does not even show up at his doorstep. And the second thing is, he comes with his own idea of expecting God to work. This is the God that I know. This is what I was expecting. He was saying, uh, I, I actually thought he would have a wand like Harry Potter and wave it around my wounds and I'll be healed. But to his surprise, that did not happen. This guy says, go and dip yourself in the lake. And he is like, what is happening here? I don't understand. He's, his pride strikes in. Why shouldn't I wash myself in the rivers that are there in Damascus and be healed? Why should I wash in, wash in the river of uh, 
Jordan. And this is probably a miniature version, but I think this is how the conversation with the soldiers and the Naaman would have done. Dude, stop being stupid. If he had asked you to do something amazing, which is worth your labor, where you think you can earn your own healing, wouldn't you have done it? He's just asking you to do a simple thing, and that is the entire reason why we traveled all the way along. Why don't you just go and wash yourself in the river as he instructed? And guess what happens? He, he, the, the soldiers asks him to obey, and he does, and guess what happens? He was healed. Now, as the scripture goes on to say, then Naaman and his entire party went back to find the man of God. They stood before him, and Naaman said, now I know that there is no God in all of the world except the one in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. But Elisha replied, As surely the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept any gifts. And though Naaman urged to take the gift, Elisha refused. Then Naaman, uh, then Naaman said, All right, but... Please allow me to load two of my mules with this earth from this place. I will take it back home with me. Now, for now I, from now on, I will never again offer burnt offerings or sacrifices to any other god except for the Lord. However, may the Lord pardon me in this one thing. When my master and the king goes into the tem temple of God, remain to worship there, is, there and lean on my arms. May the Lord pardon me when I bow too. Go in peace, Elisha said, and Naaman started home again. Now, there are few things that I'd like to call out in this entire first half of the story, okay? Uh, the first one is Naaman acknowledges that he has a disease. This might sound so cliched, but trust me, I have been in certain uh, phases of my life where I don't even, rec I, though I know that I have a discomfort or a sin that is struggling with me, I don't even acknowledge that, okay, yes, that is a sin. I know that it's a sin, but I just choose to do nothing with it. And the second thing is, he decides to seek help. This again sounds so cliched, but trust me, it's hard to go out and admit yourself, saying that you have a problem and I need help. And the third thing is, of course he's unhappy with the instructions given. He was not ready to go and dip himself in the lake just to get cured. And the next thing is, once he, hears the, once he hears the instruction, he's full of, he's filled with anger and rage. And in verse 11, you can see he actually wants God to work in his way and not in God's way. And essentially what happens is, he knows that there's a problem and he knows that is why he's there. So he decides to humble himself and obeys to the man of God. And guess what happens? He's healed. And in the imme immediately when he goes back to uh, Elisha, you could see the anger that he had actually turns into praise. Now, the key to this story, the entire thing that I could see in what, ha what did Naaman do and how he was healed is you and I, have no other option but to obey, to humble ourselves and obey in the presence of God. And unless you and I do that, you could forget the healing part that is in there. Admit that you have a problem in the presence of God and seek His guidance. 
And this is clearly what Naaman has uh, done, done, which actually led him to the path of healing, all right? And this is just the first part of the story. We st I still have a lot of scriptures. Um, I'm sure this will be quick. This, the second character that I'd like to focus on in this entire story is Gehasi or Gehasai, as, as you would. Uh, please don't be distracted by my pronunciation. Um, the scripture goes on to say, but Gehasai, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, my master should not have let this Aramean get away without accepting any of his gifts. As surely the Lord lives, I will chase after him and get something from him. So Gehasai set off after Naaman, and when Naaman saw Gehasai running, he climbed down from his chariot and he went on to meeting him and asking, is everything all right? Yes, said Gehasi, but my master has sent me to tell you that two young prophets from the hill country of Ephraim have arrived. He would like 75 pounds of silver, two sets of clothing to give to them. By all means, take twice as much as you want. And Naaman insisted on that. He gave him two sets of clothing tied up with the money in two bags, sent two of his servants to carry the gifts for Gehazi. But when they arrived at the citadel, uh, Gehazi took the gift from the servants and sent them back. Then he went and hid the gifts inside, his, inside the house. First thing, it's interesting, because I, as a person who know God, I can totally relate to this guy. He says, I will chase after him. I am going to go against this guy. And I'm going to, how, how is that you could just walk in and get healed and go and that, that's not how it works. You should pay for it. It's, grace is not a free thing. Come on now. And as soon as he meets Naaman, he starts off with a lie. My master has sent me. Do you see that? And the scripture goes on to say, when he went to his uh, master, Elisha asked him, where have you been? I haven't been anywhere. So he replied. But Elisha then asked him, don't you realize that I was there in the spirit when Naaman stepped down from his chariot to meet you? Is this the time to receive money and clothing and olive groves and vineyard, sheep and cattle, male and female servants? Because you have done this, you and your descendants will suffer from Naaman's leprosy forever. When Gehesai left the room, he was covered with leprosy. His skin was white as snow. Now, what is interesting to me in this entire passage is Gehesai replying, I haven't been nowhere. Parents would clearly know what I'm talking about. When you ask your kid, where have you been? And, and they say, I've been nowhere. It means that they've definitely been somewhere that they're not supposed to be, right? This guy does this uh, classic mistake over here. And Naaman, uh, Elisha calls him out saying, I know where have you been, where you have been, and I know what you've done. And because you have done this, you will be covered with leprosy. Now, the key observations from the life of uh, Gehazi. First thing, you gotta understand, he's one among us, as Christians, who is surrounded by godly things, who is working for the prophets, uh, for Elisha the prophet, and he knows what God is capable of doing, and he has seen it time and time again. And the second thing is, even though he was in the presence of God, 
His heart was somewhere else. He had this greed in his heart which made him think, which dictated the actions that he had because his desire was on something else. And the next thing is, he tries to justify the desire of his wicked heart in the name of the Lord. Can you relate to this? I, I definitely can. I have done this a lot of times. <clears throat> and he lies about the new prophets. He, first off, he lies about uh, Elisha sending him. And the, and the second thing where you could see that he's lying is when, Naaman, uh, when Elisha asks him, where, where have you been? This guy says, I've been nowhere. He's been, lying has been a part of his lifestyle, and he's gotten so fluent with it, not so good at it, but so fluent with it. And he thinks he'll get away with it. He then is cursed with the leprosy of Naaman. And the key takeaway from the life of Gehesai that I see right now is, might be hard to digest, but this is the truth. Uh, pay attention to me, I think this is pivotal in this entire uh, sermon. It is so easy for us to be in the presence of God and still not know who he is. I'm going to repeat myself one more time. It is so easy for us to be in the presence of God and still not know who God is. We can come to the church every Sunday time and, time and again, every Sunday on and on and on, but still not know what God's love means. We could, we could stand here in the worship team and praise the God all the time, but still not know who God is. We could sit there back in our seats and listen to the word of God, which, which sets life free every week on and on and on again, engage ourselves in community, engage ourselves in the things that really matter to God, but still not know who God is. This guy had this problem. I wonder what would have been going through this guy over the period of time, which eventually led him to end up with leprosy. Now... One of the common ways that uh, we Christians tend to slide back in our journey of uh, Christianity is by believing a lie called freedom. Because the moment you choose to stay with God, there are things that you can do and the things that you cannot do. Okay? And the enemy tends to say this on and on again, whisper it in our ears every morning, saying, you're not free. You're kind of, kind of, you know, clashed with this idea of Christianity. And I struggled with it initially when I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I had things that I, want, I thought I wanted to do, but I was also not able to do because those are not Christian things, you know? Let me, let me give you a simple analogy to understand the freedom that is in Christ Jesus. Imagine you have a kid, okay? And let, let's say the kid walks up to you and he's like, I want to go and play in the backyard. The chances are you're either going to say yes or no. You'd say yes if you have a fence around your house, and you're going to say no because you don't have a fence around your home. You see, you don't have the fence out there not because you trust the kid, it's but because to, to have a protection and safety for your kid to not be run over by the vehicles that are traffic, uh, vehicles are the traffic that is over the road. 
That is exactly how I would describe God's uh, beautiful freedom as. You, if you think about it, the kid ha- still has the freedom to jump over the fence and go and do the things that he wants to do. But the moment he gets out of the fence, it's not safe anymore. And this is one of the common misconceptions that we have where we think that we are bound with the loss and bound with the love and the Christian surroundings and the environment and the atmosphere that we live in so that we, do, we cannot do certain things that we actually want to do. My friends are having fun. I cannot have fun. And my colleagues are doing this. My people who I know in my life and my circles are doing this and accomplishing this and that and this and that. And we tend to kind of start absorbing this lie on and on again, which eventually leads us like what Gehesai did. The moment he saw an opportunity, he's like, I'm going to use it. I'm going to go after this guy and say that I need, and my master actually needs this, so that's why I actually showed up to you. Now, we saw two characters that I wanted to talk about today. There is one more, and I'm done. I wonder what God's priority is. See, I can start from the book of Genesis and go through Revelations and make you sit for like hours together to, un- to make you understand what God's priority is. But I think I cannot find any better word than what John describes God's priority was. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. You see, uh, I find this passage interesting again because God has witnessed time and time again that humanity is something that, you know, <clears throat> they, they, they never obey God. If you look at the... Uh, right from Adam and Eve until uh, now, we always choose to disobey God. We have this heart that is so wicked that we do not even want to follow God and obey to his word and live a life that he wants us to live. He knows that we are disgusting creatures. But still, he gave his only son. Again, look at that. It says his only son, to be crucified on the cross so that we will be set free, so that we can have eternal life. That describes something about God, doesn't it? But we often tend to think, it's okay, let's just chill. Let God do his work, let us do our work. But I also want you to remind you today that sin is not a concept or an idea. Sin is real. This guy, uh, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have referred to God as this guy, but either way. uh, (laughs) God, in his majesty, who, who decides to send his son to be crucified on the cross for us, who loves us so deeply that he's ready to give his son for us, is also just. He does not want us to be sinful because he knows sin is that only thing that separates us from him. And even though we know this, we just try to normalize everything. We just try to generalize everything so that we are happy. 
and we have our own desires somewhere else, and in the process, we kind of miss the communion that we have with God. <clears throat> you know, over the period of time, media has done a tremendous job. When we talk about sin and evil and devil, we just imagine a dark creature with red eyes with multiple horns that you can't even count. But let me tell you this. The sin that we are dealing with in this day and age are so deceptive that you would not even realize that we are dealing with sin anymore. Let me give you a few examples. Let me know if this sounds familiar. Social correctness. Political correctness. See, you and I are not saved by the blood of Christ to be socially correct. And if you wish to be socially correct, it is a plague that, that binds Christianity. You and I are called to make disciples, not to be socially correct in front of a gathering. Ask yourself in your heart, I'm asking it myself too, when is the last time you have actually shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with someone who don't know God? Yeah. <clears throat> and we as a society, we don't even know what shame means anymore. What does shame even mean? When is the last time you have felt shame in your heart? You see this, the deceptiveness of sin that we are dealing with in today's day and age? And the next thing... Just because I go to church every Sunday, just because I participate in the community of the church, just because, I, just because I contribute and serve God in and through the church, we think we have done a tremendous job. Example, let's say there is a need tomorrow in a far off land. I would rather choose, I as a Christian, as a so-called Christian, would rather choose to make a donation for the missionary who is ready to go out rather than going and putting myself out there for the name of the Lord. We just want to sit comfortably in our couches and still say that we have contributed so much for the kingdom of God. Now, I'm not asking you to go, go on mission fields tomorrow. That's not what I'm saying, but I, I believe you get my point. That is the kind of sin that we are dealing with every day. I want you to ask yourself, are you really living a life that God wants and intends you to live? You know, uh, Steve Turner, uh, in his book, Modern Thinker's Creed, he responds to the people who's, who see life as sec in, in secular terms, and he responds and presents an argument uh, to, cry, uh, to them saying that God is real, and you've got to believe it. I, I took a piece of uh, his writing and edited it to fit in the Christian framework, and I'd like to read them out to you. I hope you find it useful. We believe everything is okay as long as you don't hurt anyone to your best definition of hurt to the, and to the best of your knowledge. We believe in sex before, during, and after marriage. We believe in the therapy of sin. We believe that adultery can meet certain needs that we have. We believe what Bible says is necessarily true. We believe that everything getting better despite evidence to the contrary. The evidence must be investigated and basically you can prove anything with evidence. We believe that there is something in karma, extraterrestrial life, and flat earth. Jesus was a good man uh, in the same way as Buddha, Muhammad, and ourselves. He, was a, he is a good moral teacher, though we think his good morals doesn't really matter. Believe that all religions are we believe that all religions are basically the same. They all believe in uh, 
love and goodness, even though they differ in the matters of creation, sin, heaven, hell, God, and salvation. We believe after death comes nothing because when you ask the dead what happened, they say nothing. Um, if death is not the end, if the dead have lied, then it's compulsory thing. Uh, it's compulsory heaven for all except perhaps Hitler, Hitler Stalin, and Genghis Khan. <laughs> we believe what's selected is average, and what's average is normal, and what's normal is good. We believe that man is essentially not good. It is only his behavior that lets him down. This is the fault of society. Society is a fault of condition, and condition is the fault of society again. <clears throat> we believe that each man must find the truth that is right for him. Reality will adapt accordingly. The universe will readjust, and history will alter for sure. We reject absolute truth and worship and the flowering of individual thought. We believe we can live a life that places and causes me as an, because me as an individual matters more than anything else in this world. Although deep inside our heart, we know that this is not how Jesus would want us to be. And when all of this wraps up in our deathbed, we know for sure there's a place for us in heaven. I want you to think about what we just read for a minute. Do we actually see ourselves in what I just read? Does that make sense? Think about it. You know, day in and day out, every second of your life, Christ is standing right next to you to help you overcome the ideas and the sins that you're dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. Let me tell you this. I, I, I'm sharing this with you, not, not to brag about it, but uh, I, I believe God's name would be glorified in what I'm just going to share. <clears throat> It was being brought and brought up in a Hindu society. Choosing to live as a Christian was not an easy decision to make. I struggled through it. I had to fight every day, trying to reason out to the people that I see in my life every day, to my parents, to my friends, saying why I believe in certain things that, uh, the way I believe, and why I choose to believe in things that I don't believe. It was not an easy decision. And there are times when I thought, oh God, what have I stepped into? But trust me, when you decide to take a stand for him, he would show up no matter what. He will show up no matter what. That is one of the classic attributes of God, which is also called as grace or mercy. He makes sure, he's not someone who is uh, chilling in his couch watching your life in front of a TV and says, yeah, I like this guy seeing fail. I, I like seeing this guy fail in front of all the people that he used to live with. No, that's not what God is. He stands right next to you and he says, we got this. Let's do this. And <clears throat> one other illustration and I'm done with my sermon. It was in 1992 Olympics that happened in Barcelona. There was a guy named Derek Redmond who was highly favored among the athletes and the commentators and the people who were watching the event itself, uh, thinking that he would actually win gold in the 400-meter track event. And as the curiosity out 
uh, they all piled up. Uh, as the guns was fired, everybody was set off. But little did Derek Redmond realize that he was going to pull his hamstring over during the half of the race. He did. He tore his hamstring during the half of the race. And he fell down to the ground in pain. He didn't know what to do. Uh, the medics rushed. He was blank. His mind was blank. He had to make a decision either if he had to continue the race or to quit. And he said to the medics he was going to continue the race. This guy, he walks with pain. Imagine walking with a torn hamstring. He is trying to hop through the, the rest of the race with pain. And when all of this is happening, and the crowd is they, shocked, they have no idea what's going on. When all of this is happening, a guy is identified to be pushing the crowd, fighting the security, trying to reach Derek Redmond on the track. And this guy was none other than Jim Redmond, Derek's father. As soon as he reaches him, he says, son, you don't have to do this. It's OK. But Derek says, no, dad, I got to do this. Jim, in response, he says, well, if you want to do this, let's do this together. Jim wraps Derek's arms around his shoulders, and he walks with him until he reaches the finish line. And the moment he's nearing finish line, Jim, lets, Jim just let Derek go and finish the race. You see, the actual question that we are dealing with today is, are you determined to finish the race? Are you determined to put God as your priority in your life so that it would change everything that you see and walk on daily life? Uh, are you going to work just because you got to pay your bills? Or are we actually going to work because you are working for God Almighty to share, to be the light in the workplace that you are in? What is driving you? I want you to think about it and meditate on this piece of scripture as we uh, go home later. Again, where's your heart at? Are you determined to finish the race? Thank you. Uh, I'm finding myself by, quite verklempt right now. You know what that word means? You watch Sunday Night Live, you do it. You watch Sunday I don't know what it means. You're not obeying his sermon. Uh, but, but I just want to say, uh, verklempt is a word that I'm, I'm filled with emotion. And there was just something, and I think it was a mix of a lot of different things. One is which you just spoke a truth that's incredibly important. It, it, and... And it wasn't just that you spoke that truth, it was I had this sense of America for a very long time was the largest mission sending nation in the world. We sent more missionaries out, more places than anybody else by far. And then there came a day when at this point in time we actually receive more people called by God to be on mission inside of America. And that's you. Yeah. I'm on it. God sends us people who have found God in difficult places and that need to understand the difference between a Christianity that is secularized, compromised, and one that is Him. And He sends people over here in loving ways to be a part of a congregation to give a message 
to tell us what we need to hear. Because we don't see it. Because it just is how it works in the world. So Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, we join with this one that you have sent to us. I want to thank you for how beautifully you spoke that through him. And in Jesus' name, God, even more we want to receive the truth that you spoke through him. We want to receive it in our hearts, and we want our hearts to break with our own sin, with our own recognition of the ways in which we have compromised and been compromised. And in Jesus' holy and precious name, not that we lift him up as, a, as a supreme example of sinlessness, but we lift you up. We lift you up as the one who is not only sinless, Lord Jesus, but the one who died and sent the Holy Spirit to help us walk as you did. So in Jesus' holy and precious name, God, thank you for sending us not just a great message, but yourself to accomplish it. And we would come before you right now and each person in our own heart would say, I receive it. I don't even get it, not fully, not the, not the whole of who you are, but I receive that you would do whatever it takes to get me there, in fullness, in God. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name for what you do to help us. Now, by your strong right arm, get us to actually do it. In Jesus' name, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Big Me. Thank you. That was just phenomenal. Thank you. All right. So, yeah, amen. Amen. Right? And, and I think it's worth noting, 20s. Okay? This is important. Okay? God's got his 7,000. God's got his ones that he's raising up. So, uh, ushers, go ahead and come forward. Thank you, everybody, for pouring out. Summer is always interesting in the giving world and the churches and so on. And thank you for being faithful. In Jesus' holy and precious name, God, you who have done so much for us, we simply pour back in thanksgiving and praise in you. So in Jesus' holy and precious name, we pour out unto you. You who have given everything to us to begin with. Here, Lord, here. Thank you for it. You know, I forgot to do communion, so just before you pass those baskets, would you reach down and just grab some communion? God, in this lower cup is this bread, and we understand that the bread is your body, and we understand that it is the decisions that we have made that have broken us, and that's why you needed to be broken, so that you would take upon yourself what was due us, but you wouldn't just take it upon yourself, you would also rise again in setting us free from it, in healing us. Your broken body makes us whole. So God, with that sermon in mind, with that important sermon in mind, we come before you and put our finger in there saying we understand that we are broken, not just in ways we understand right now, but in ways we don't. And so in Jesus' holy and precious name, we lift this cup of healing that you would make us whole in you. Thank you, Lord. Take this cup together. And now, Lord, I just, my favorite time of every single Sunday, 
as lifting this cup. Because this is the life that you have. And it's already been given, every part of it. And all we need to do is walk in it. And so in Jesus' name, we thank you and praise you that you have such a beautiful life for us. And we take it saying, make that my life. In Jesus' name, take together. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. What a great Sunday. Thank you guys for picking up the offering. Thank you for leading us, Pam. I love